Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode nine of the Downrange Podcast. I am Cody, your host. First and foremost, happy Veterans Day to all my fellow veterans out there. Thank you so much for your service. We joke around about it all the time, but truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for stepping up, taking that call, and making the decision to serve our country that we all love so much. So, as I said, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Quick shout outs that I want to put out there real quick. And that's just identify some veterans that I have in my life that matter the most to me. First of all, my little brother, Justin, proudly served the United States Army. My older brother, AJ, proudly served the United States Army. My dad proudly served in the United States Army. My grandpa, Barney, may he rest in peace, proudly served in the United States Army Air Corps and later on in the United States Air Force. My grandpa, Kurt, Proudly served United States Army. My father-in-law, Juan, proudly retired from the United States Army. To all my friends, former colleagues, thank you guys. There's too many to list, but having you guys in our lives means the world to me. Could not thank you enough. Could not thank the people, fellow veterans that have reached out to me since we've started this podcast. I hope you guys have a fantastic day. I, for one, we don't have an Applebee's, so we're not going to be getting any uh, free lunch. And I'm pretty sure the Golden Corral in Southern Pines closed, so that's probably not going to happen. But besides that, have a day. Enjoy yourselves. Remember what uh, your service was for, what the results of it are, and uh, keep your head held high. If you ever need anybody to reach out to to talk to, please, please, please reach out. Always here to talk and have an open ear for whatever you have going on. Lastly, and most important, and that would be my wife, who we're going to hear from today, the most important veteran that I have in my life, and somebody that means the world to me because our relationship is based on a ton of service, but ultimately is my rock, my best friend, the mother of my children, and somebody who I could not even imagine living this life without. And that's Yari, proudly served in the United States Air Force. And today we get to hear her story. So without further ado, Yari McBride. Enjoy. Well, I was born in Puerto Rico, 1983, in July. July 3rd at 3 o'clock, as my grandma always used to say and remind me of. My mom was maybe 21 when she had me, which I guess is not that atypical for that time. Um, my dad was and is 12 years older than my mom. So um, my dad, when my parents started dating, had already gone off to Vietnam and had come back. Um, and honestly, it's one of those things where I wish I have, would have sat with my dad a little bit more and asked these questions, which I still could do, I guess. But, um, we don't really talk about the military, oddly enough. Me and my dad, considering the fact we both went into very similar fields in the military, we've never really talked about our service in a sit down way. It's always been kind of in passing. Um, but anyway... My dad did some time. Uh, he went off to Vietnam. He came back, um, and he met my mom. 
and my mom was 16 at the time. My dad was 28, which is crazy now that I have three girls. And I'm like, absolutely not. However, you know, they dated, you know, the official way. Come meet the parents. Is it okay? My dad came from a very, very poor background. Um, for those that don't know, I'm of Puerto Rican descent. Uh, both my parents are Puerto Rican. Um, if you know anything about Puerto Rico, you know that, you know, we're kind of a melting pot of races and cultures, but um, mostly we're descendants of uh, slaves, African slaves, uh, indigenous people, which are called Tainos in Puerto Rico and Spanish. So my dad's background is that his dad was Spanish. I mean, beautiful, blonde hair, blue eyes, super, super fair skinned. Uh, And my dad's mom was indigenous. So she had those high cheekbones and that long, beautiful hair and, you know, really short and beautiful smile. And my mom's background is my dad, my mom's dad was of African descent, literally no mix of anything. So um, very dark skinned. Um, And my mom's mom was uh, Spanish and Taino. So she was, you know, fair skinned, but um, still had some, you know, color to her cheeks. So that gives you kind of an idea of, you know, what my family looks like. Um, You know, we're darker than, you know, people tend to see. J-Lo is not what we all look like. (laughs) Um, So we're a little darker, but, you know, uh, long hair, uh, curly hair. Um, But enough so that people might ask, like, oh, are you black and white? Uh, People tend to be surprised that I'm Hispanic. So anyway, all that to say that... um, they met, they dated, uh, my dad courted my mom, you know, asked for her hand, you know, came home, spoke to my mom's mom and asked for her hand, for my mom's hand. And which is interesting because my grandmother had my mom young. So my dad was close in age with my grandmother. Like, I think it was equidistant. Like I think he was 10, 15 years younger than my grandma, but 10, 15 years older than my mom. Because, you know, my grandma had my yeah. mom at 20. So they kind of had like... It's just an interesting relationship. Anyway, but for the time, it wasn't odd. As you know, like your parents are also 12 years apart. So it wasn't really odd for the time. So anyway, my mom moved on. Um, well, not moved on, but my dad went off to Vietnam, came back, met my mom. And then my mom graduated high school and was like, I'm going to go to school. You know, she went to the University of Puerto Rico in San Juan. Um, she did a year or so there, still dating my dad. And um, they decided they were going to get married. Um, my mom dropped out of college, um, and went off to live with my dad who, after they got married, they had this huge extravagant wedding. I mean, the pictures are just, you know, what you expect the, the pearls and the poofs and, you know, the, the Afro hair and they got married and my dad got orders to, uh, he joined the military again. He went back into the army and was like, I need to do something to to support my family. So is your dad drafted into Vietnam? He was drafted into Vietnam, but after he did his time. So did his minimum and then came back home, courted your mom, met, had you. Yes. And then decided, I kind of like that. Let's, let's enlist. 
Well, he liked it in the sense that it was stability. It was like, I need to be able to provide. And as beautiful as Puerto Rico is, it's on a very small island. There's not a lot of opportunity. And my dad grew up very, very poor. So he knew this isn't, and he grew up in the house he was born in. My grandma still lived there till three years ago when she passed. So beautiful little house that's been like, you know, kept up and she loved that house and I mean, my best childhood memories are there. But, but even even though hard times and didn't have everything growing up, still very, very successful, not only in school, but baseball. I mean, I remember him showing me pictures of, like, not only his local leagues, but, you know, trying to get offers to colleges and stuff to play baseball. Well, yeah, I mean, my dad's really, really smart. And I think um, that's definitely come down, you know, as a family, we're all intellectual people. We like to study. We like to learn. Um, my dad's just that natural brain. Like he just picks up on stuff and, you know, he's really, really smart where the rest of us, you know, all did get great grades as in like me, my brother and my mom all are good, good at school and, you know, get good grades, but we work our butt off to get there. Like right. it's hard work where my dad has always kind of been like, oh, it's just obviously this is the answer. You know, he's just been really smart, but yeah, I mean, yeah, growing up, he was in, into baseball, which what Puerto Rican <laughs> adolescent boy isn't. And I say boy, but, you know, it's literally like Americans see football. Right. Um, We see baseball. It's just a way of life. Every We don't have, like, basketball courts in every neighborhood. We have baseball fields right. in every neighborhood, baseball park, you know. Um, so I think it was just natural for him to be an athlete. He was he actually played baseball, but he went to school for track. Um, and he graduated college. This is all before, you know, he came back from Vietnam, went to college. And then, uh, you know, obviously through that was with my mom. And then um, we all moved to California. <clears throat> Don't ask me where we lived in California. Because <laughs> all I know is that I have photos. And they might have been, honestly, like one of those Sears photos where you go and there's like a backdrop. And the backdrop is like, the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. I don't think it really was the Golden Gate Bridge. I can't even <laughs> tell you. But we moved there. We weren't there long. And then um, we moved to uh, North Carolina. My dad got orders to Fort Bragg. My mom actually recently, a couple days ago, we were talking about it. And she said, oh, well, we were in California because he was just like, let me just do a couple, two more years. You know, because back then, I think the Army still has short enlistments like that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know. Um, but the time he was going to do these two years, you know, I just had a little girl. Let me like get some ex- work experience and we're going to come back to the Island. And my mom said that she got pregnant with my brother and, um, which she always laughs about cause she had like an IUD in and she said that my brother came out with the IUD stuck to the top of his head. <laughs> so anyway, she got pregnant unexpectedly and he said, I, I can't get out. So he, uh, was stationed in Fort Bragg. My brother was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He used to tell us growing up, that I'm not Puerto Rican. I'm American. <laughs> he was little. Anyway, he would be very embarrassed now that I repeated that. But um, he, yeah, so we moved to North Carolina. We were here for maybe two years. And then my dad got orders to Panama, Central America. And What year is this? This is... My brother was maybe two. So this was in 87. Yeah, maybe around that time. 87, 88. 
Yeah, around that time. We moved to Panama, um, which, honestly, one of the most amazing places I've ever lived in my life. And I say one of, but the most amazing place I've ever lived. And I think... From your experience. From my experience. At the time, and from what everybody else views of Panama then, what was the scene in Panama? What was going on? Noriega. He was a military leader that had taken over and was like a huge problem for the United States and the United States was in the drug issue. Like he was super involved in all that stuff. Um, and the military was like, this guy can't continue to go. Not only that, I mean, there were literally military people forces and American civilians living in Panama with all this drug stuff going on and corruption and everything. So like a crescendo at the time of like the tail end of, of Reagan coming in with the war on drugs and, transitioning into bush but ultimately like that being the focal point and everybody saying all this drug problems that we have in the united states are originating or transiting through panama right and that was like the big war on drugs you know kind of thing so that's where we were you know in the middle of that and my dad you know was special forces um he was a spanish speaking soldier so he was an interrogator that spoke spanish so he had like the coolest jobs. He was always gone, which I can only imagine at that age um, being like, oh, my God, I get to go to all these cool places. I'm like at, in the thick of it, you know, um, but we didn't see him much. I mean, there's still like there's times where he brings this up and it's always been a joke. But I now as a parent, I can see that it's got to be painful. Um, he says that he came home one day after being gone for a long time and he came to like the carport door, you know, on the side of the house. You could like come in through the kitchen on the side of the house. And he got out of his car in the carport and went to open the screen door. You know, Panama bugs. Everybody has a screen door. <laughs> um, he went to open the screen door and it was locked. He looked inside the kitchen and I was in there twirling around. It was a I remember it to be a huge kitchen, but probably wasn't. But it had the most amazing silky floors. So if you put on some socks, you could slide through the whole thing, like risky business style. Um, And I used to like do that and ballerina around in there. And he says that I was in there twirling around and he knocked on the door and waved. And I looked through, you know, like, you know, stranger danger, looked through the door, like at a distance, maybe 15 feet away and yelled upstairs, mom, there's a guy at the door. So I didn't recognize him. And we laughed about it growing up, but, uh, you know, like I said, as a parent, I think, wow, that would devastated me, right. you know? So anyway, he was gone a lot. This was like 1988, 89, you know, around that time and just cause happened. Um, so basically the United States was like, Noriega's not going to do this anymore. And I remember, you know, keep in mind, this is 89 88 sometime around there um and my memory is he was gone (laughs) typical you know he was gone and my mom um my memory is sitting in the walk-in closet with the mattress in there and like the shoes and the hanging clothes and you know like the the horrible lighting you know closets never have good lighting and me and my mom kind of sitting in there and she had like this like those old shitty radios like you know with the little spinner and it makes all the noise you know and she got on the little station 
and my dad was on the radio. It was the military pushing out radio comms and psyops, you know, to the Panamanian people. Like, we're the good guys. We're coming. And it was also, like, twofold also against Noriega, which if anybody knows how Noriega came out, he was, like, held himself up in his house for ever and only came out after the United States military played rock music at full blast for days at a time. He couldn't take it anymore. He literally came out and said, please kill me. Just take me. So anyway, my dad was on the radio because my dad was special ops, but kind of in the psyops realm. And he was on the radio talking. I was like, that is my dad. But I also remember um, walking into the master bathroom, um, what primary bathroom now, primary bathroom and, my brother sleeping in the tub and you know, my brother, Mm. this is 88, 89. So I am, you know, he's four, three or four. So our twins, imagine the twins. Um, and he was laying in the, in the tub and my mom had made a bed, like put a comforter in there, a pillow and a blanket. And as a child, I thought, okay, yeah, this is what what we're doing. We're we're hanging out in mom's room. Cause you know, culturally, um, we don't go into our parents' room. It's very odd for me to see when, you know, like when we go visit your mom, you're like, mom, what are you doing? And you walk into her room. Like, it's very odd um, to me. We've always learned that we stand in the doorway, we knock and we wait to be acknowledged. Anyway, so to be allowed to go into that room and hang out with my mom was like the coolest and dad's gone. So we're going to do a slumber party. Um, And now as a parent, looking back, I think the fear yeah, your mom, that's the closest and most protective spot that she could possibly find. Yeah, and inside of the house closet. It's not near the, the edges of the house. And if we if bombs happen or something occurs, my brother was in a tub. Yep. So it's the safest he could be. Now, you know, I've never spoken to my mom about that. Like, what was that like? We've never right. spoken about it. Not because it's awkward or, or, God, I could never bring this up. But... You know, you just go through life and there's different events that happen. And, you know, it's kind of a haze to you as a child. As a parent, you want to protect your kids and make sure they're not traumatized. But I think that's the beauty of being, you know, a kid that you're kind of just along for the ride. You don't even notice it. As long as the energy's right, you don't even notice that there's something to be scared about. So anyway, that was our, our time in, in Panama, Just Cause. So, yeah. So Operation Just Cause. So the end of or mid-December 1989. Till late January 1990. Yeah, so not long. <laughs> but you guys were there like years prior, oh, yeah. leading up, putting in groundwork. We left in 94. Right. Yeah. So. What changed after Noriega was gone? Don't ask me. I was a kid. <laughs> I didn't know. So as a that. kid, what are you doing? I mean, you're, you're living in base housing or contracted base housing. You're going yeah. to military schools. Well, yeah, I went to... Um, yeah, I lived in base housing, which was, you know, all we knew. And there were nice houses. Um, the thing about the Army, and I don't know if they still do it this way. I know the Air Force didn't do it this way. But the Army put you in housing depending on your rank. Still do. Still do. Okay. So I remember my dad promoting because he worked his butt off. I mean, he worked really hard and he made it through. He enli- he promoted really, really fast. Not only that, he joined a little later. So he was older than his, like counterparts or his like his friends you know but um i remember living in like um an apartment building we lived all the way at the top 
you know, so there were two set first floor, two second floor, and we were the one on the fifth on the third floor. We we're the fifth unit, and this little bitty apartment. I still remember like my mom making coffee, and you know those those metal things that you put on the on the on the stove. And I remember her what I thought as a kid, but my vision as a kid was sitting in the dining room watching her filter the coffee through a sock. I know it wasn't a sock. I'm sure it was like old school filtering. Right. You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't remember, but I remember it was like it had a little metal hook on it and she'd pour it through and it like hit the I mean, the epitome of slow drip. Right. I mean. So anyway, a little bitty apartment, maybe two bedrooms. I mean, I don't remember. I couldn't remember. It was so early on. And then he promoted and we moved into a four bedroom house. Yeah, four bedroom house, two story, and this was the house with the carport. And it was a duplex, but it was I remember it being massive. Right. And I remember the foyer feeling like, whoa. Now, if we went in there now today, I probably was like, <laughs> what? This place is tiny. But it felt huge. Um, my mom always made the house feel like so homey. You know, she was um, a spouse, a military spouse, but she worked on posts as well. She worked at the education center. So my mom didn't have a college degree. You know, she dropped out of school a year after to have, you know, marry my dad and have us. But she was always very driven and always really smart. And I remember her like going to work in a pencil skirt and, you know, like the big hair. Like she looked like working woman. Um, Yeah, working woman, right? Um, It's the the movie with Melanie Griffith and um, where she's working downtown and, you know, she basically has no education, takes over some firm but anyway working woman i want to say anyway i feel like i'm calling her a street walker but it's not <laughs> i don't remember the name anyway she was always really really dressed up um i'm very professional it was admiring to see you know as a little girl seeing your mom go out and you know work too she left with my dad and yeah. we being in panama um the local community would come on post to work i mean i remember the buses coming in they looked like old white gray school buses they would come in from the zone is what they called it so the zone was off post they would come in and you know all the all the maids all the nannies would get off the bus and you know help you out and i remember um we had a nanny just because my mom worked left early and because it was such a long drive in some cases from wherever they would lived in panama they would stay the night so we had uh three my entire childhood, my entire time in Panama, we had three. Um, and, you know, they moved on for various reasons. Like, oh, I'm moving back to, I think we had one that was from the Dominican Republic. So she was moving back to DR with her family. But um, they were amazing. They were like second moms. You know, they were to make breakfast and, you know, get us dressed and help my mom. And, you know, and my mom was very organized on how she kept the house. Like, I remember looking at the fridge and seeing the schedule. My mom wrote, what we would have for breakfast every day, what we would have for dinner every day. Um, and that's what the nannies or, you know, maids did. And don't think by no means this is like highfalutin life. Like this was not that. It was they made $20 out in the economy and my mom paid them 30 You know, like that was, it was nothing. It was nothing. Um, and everybody had somebody that helped. It was like kind of like the basis or the, the basis way of giving back to like Panama. So you would have like people come on, TCNs, we call them in other other uh, countries around the world, but or third country nationals. But yeah, there were um, 
huge parts of our lives. But although she was busy and worked outside the home, she made sure that our home felt cozy and decorated. And, you know, it was like the best way to grow up. And Panama is Central America. I mean, the animals and the bugs that you see, like I still remember um, these caterpillars that had like coral on their back. Like it was disgusting. They were probably as, they were massive. Again, I can't even give a good enough, good size because as my, as a child, they probably look like anacondas to me and they were like <laughs> tiny, but. Um, also it should be noted, not a bug person. No. <laughs> so huge. And I, if you took, threw me in there today as an adult, I would be in the house all day. I wouldn't even right. leave. Like as a child, it was like, oh yeah, there's those big coral light blue fluorescent colored worms like grubs and they were like caterpillars they had like coral on their back and i remember one time i'll never forget it i was playing with my brother outside and i put my hand up against the fence and i felt the worst fiery pain and when i looked i had put my hand on one of those caterpillars it was like the worst pain it was like fire almost like jellyfish worse though because it was like the stabbing pain of the coral anyway so after panama we moved to California. My dad got orders when I turned 11. So I'd been there for maybe, what, seven years? Um, when I turned 11, so 94, um, we moved to California. My dad was teaching at Monterey Bay. He was going to teach um, at the Defense Language Institute, DLI. So we moved out there. Huge culture shock. I mean, we came from Central America where everybody was American or Panamanian. And Panamanians have a lot of shades. They have, they're dark because of the heavy African influence, but there are a few people that are lighter because of the Spanish influence. But Panamanians tend to be darker to the point that even within the Hispanic community, when we see someone that's like dark skinned and they're Hispanic, we're like, huh, they must be Panamanian. You know, like we just like assume that just because there's, it's just a dark community. Um, we moved from that. And, oh, and by the way, the best food ever. I mean, local economy had like, I mean, there's still food to this day that I make that I used to eat as a child. Um, to California, <laughs> Monterey Bay, uh, where, what is it, Pretty Little Lies was filmed? Yeah. Um, so if you can compare that show to what I'm just describing, it was very different. It was a huge culture shock. And we used to go out to... A, and don't call me, I was 11, uh, Salinas, Seaside, California, um, Gilroy, um, which were all these farming communities, like you see fields and fields of produce, you know, and Mexicans everywhere because that was the labor force that was working out there. So we would see it on the outskirts, but when it came to, you know, closer to Monterey or the base, it was very, like, it was not diverse. So we were only there for... We got there in like July, so summer PCS season, and we were gone by January, February. Why we, I mean, my mom, my brother, and myself. So um, my parents, my mom filed for divorce when we were in California, and it was really a shock. So uh, growing up, my dad, um, you know, the military gives you 30 days of leave a year. And my dad would save all that leave. So we would do the full 30 in Puerto Rico with family. So my summers growing up, up until the age of 11, 
were always in Puerto Rico with my mom, my dad, and my brother living at my grandma's house out on the farm, chasing chickens and, and roosters and, uh, cows and horses. Like it was just what I was used to. Um, so we were there that summer when I was 11. So I turned 11 birthdays in July turned in 11 turned 11 and I remember the moment that it was like me and my mom were at my my dad's mom's house and she sat me down and was like so there's something I need to tell you um I'm leaving your dad which was like huge blow because as a parent she had been very careful to keep you know their problems private so unlike you when my mom left I was shocked because I thought well, we have this perfect family. What do you mean? Right. Um, so I was devastated. And she told me by myself, like, there was not like, you know, something you would see in like a movie where the dad and the mom sit with the kids and they're like, so mommy and daddy aren't going to be together anymore. I'm sure parents, great parents do that. My parents at the time were either not in a place or were not equipped enough to know that that was probably a better way to do it. So... My mom told me, yeah, I'm leaving your dad. We're still going to go to California because, you know, this was the summer before the move. We're still going to go to California, but we're not going to be there long. So I got to California with, you know, my family. And like I said, a whole different world. Man, it was cold. Monterey's cold. <laughs> um, and, you know, huge difference from Panama where in the winter it rains. Like you don't even feel the cold. So we got out there and then my mom, you know, sat me and my brother down and told my brother um, that she was leaving my dad. And then a few months later, we were gone. My mom packed up the station wagon and drove from California to Houston, Texas. And the reason why we moved to Houston was because one of my mom's best friends from Panama um, lived in Houston now. She like worked for like American Airlines or something. She was like a um, big executive at one of these uh, airlines and you know being her best friend said come out here and live with me so my mom packed up the station wagon and left and basically went on ahead of us left me and my brother with my dad and when she got to Houston maybe a week or so however long it took her to get there I mean it wasn't one of those things like oh you'll be with your dad for a few months no like the minute she got there she was like send them so she got to Houston uh, got us got an apartment and we flew out to to see my to live with my mom and later in the years my dad has mentioned like I never thought she'd leave like one of the hardest points for him was that she said yeah I'm gonna leave like obviously he knew this on that Puerto Rico vacation and he still thought eh <laughs> she's she not gonna do it she's not gonna do it so probably the same thing when she left and left you guys with him she'll be back right and no he talks about that moment where he like dropped us off and was like that's it like my family as i know it is gone it's, it'll never be the same um so we got to houston we still maintained very frequent contact with our dad i mean we we loved our dad my brother being the son of the family was like played baseball, played all the same stuff my dad did. And they had a real passion and, and a bond. And then me being his only daughter, I had a bond with my dad, you know, daddy's little girl, you know, I still say that the best I love you comes from my dad. 
It's just something about the way he says it or I don't know or how he pronounces it. I don't know what it is, but it definitely is that, you know, Sigmund Freud kind of like your first love is your dad, you know? So anyway, we make it to Houston and we arrive and I'm like, what is this? You know, as a child, I arrive and I think cowboys everywhere, horses, it's Texas. <laughs> and I make it there and it's a big city. Houston is big. Yeah. Um, and lots of grocery stores, really big. I remember Fiesta, a big parrot on the, on the sign. And it was like, Fiesta was the Mexican food store, right? Because the heavy population of Hispanics in Texas are Mexican descent. So it was Hispanic, but it wasn't the Spanish I was used to. And right. it wasn't the food that I was used to. I was like, what, what are these ingredients? Like, this isn't even what we eat. Um, and we live in an apartment. So we were in Houston a total of maybe two months. Not long enough for me to even really make friends. I remember, obviously, it was devastating. Where's dad? You know, um, where are we? What, we live in an apartment now. We just live in a house. You know, what do you mean? We, um, everything's changed. And, you know, you have to remember, my mom didn't go to college. She didn't have a degree to fall on. She literally said, this marriage isn't working for me. And what's best for me and my children is that we leave. I have no job. I have no education. But this is what's best. So we lived in this apartment and I still remember um, the house being covered in boxes. We never had furniture. I don't remember furniture in that house. I remember like our beds on the floor um, and like dishes, you know, like my mom buying dishes for the kitchen. And It was one of those like little galley kitchens too. Like you walk in and you walk out. Like there's no like island um and yeah there was nothing really there it was a nice apartment though like she picked a good apartment complex it was just small it was you know a little and it was two bedroom I remember anyway we had a night my mom now as adults we've talked about it but my mom had a horrible breakdown like you know when people say um that when you're going when your mind's going through stuff your body goes through it too she was going through such a dramatic change and devastation from her marriage ending because like I said she left saying this is what's best for my family she had no plan she just knew that for me to be a better person and be happy um we need to leave so that does not change even if you're the person that decides the divorce that doesn't change the fact that it's extremely painful and that your kids are probably asking you where's daddy what happened um so, and I was 11 and my brother was nine. So we're in this place, this, this apartment. And I remember we fell as like we were watching TV and we were in our room, like me and my brother's room. We had like a twin bed. She hadn't bought another bed yet. So me and my brother slept like, you know, feet to face kind of thing. And, uh, me and my brother were sitting on the floor. My mom was laying in the bed because her back was hurting. She was having an intense like back spasm. She literally walked hunched over like scoliosis like for like a week or so. She like was literally manifesting the stress. So we fell asleep on the floor or my mom fell asleep on the bed. We were sitting on the floor watching TV and you know that moment where you turn around like she's asleep, you know, let, let's go to bed. So me and my brother relocated to the other side of the apartment to sleep in her bed, which was still on the floor. I think it didn't even have sheets on it. We grabbed like a comforter out of a box. But, you know, as kids, you don't even notice 
what the heck sucks so we fall asleep so in the middle of the night i wake up and this was probably the first time i've ever felt fear like devastating frightening paralyzing fear i woke up in the middle of the night and the way that the bed was positioned it faced the door and the door was open so the door was facing in on the other side of the door was a screen door so i could see the light from outside shining on that door and i don't know what it was that woke me up but i woke up and my eyes focused and when i looked at the door there was a man standing there and at that moment i thought he's in the house like i thought there's this dark figure that i'm seeing is in the house um and that was the moment where i was like well you know you can't even like your body doesn't even move like you're just completely paralyzed when people say like fight or flight it's not true there's also freeze in there and that was you know now that i think about it it was like a moment of fear but it definitely has defined who i am in that at that moment i thought oh my god he's in the house and she's across the house she has no idea there's a man in our house and my brother who's two years younger is sleeping next to me snoring definitely snoring and i look up at the door and there's that moment where i'm like what do i do like do i lay here and not move because does he see me because i feel like he's looking right at me and that was that moment where which i'm sure you felt it in jumping school where you're at that door that plane and you're like I gotta jump you know and there was that moment that was like I've got to scream like that's, that's whatever happens from this moment but I have to get this scream out and I did and thankfully he was not in the house he was outside the, the door and that light from the street light gave me the shadow on the door that I thought was a person which Yeesh. it was which it was haven't I told you the story no oh so he wasn't in the house so when i let out that scream it scared him and my mom says her recollection is that she shot about a bed that pain that had her hands hunched over that she couldn't even walk was gone and she ran across the, the apartment we laugh about it now that she said yeah all i could say was i'm coming like i'm coming like whatever it was i knew i had to be loud and and you know boisterous and she said i was like jumping through over cardboard boxes to get to you guys and i remember her making it to the room and me trying to get out there's a there was a man trying to get in and her saying i don't even know what was happening but she told me to call 911 um and i was like okay so i picked up the phone called 911 and told them there's somebody trying to get in i'm assuming at this point my mom is like making sure the doors are locked and this is a screen door meaning you can completely see right. us. It doesn't matter if it's locked either. But but not only that, but you can see us. We can't see you. Right. You know, we can't see out. We're just seeing our reflections. So we called the, the police. They came over and they said, yep, clearly there's footsteps. So it, was, it had been raining. So there was like footsteps in the mud. Um, But they called the apartment complex. And in the end, they told us that it wasn't someone who was trying to get in, that they believe that the people that lived there before us were a bunch of college students that maybe this was a friend or something that was coming over that thought they still live there. Needless to say, we moved out and left Houston maybe a week after that. Like we were gone. So that was the decision to leave. I think it contributed because we no longer felt fully safe, but 
like I said, my mom moved to Houston because a friend of hers from Panama lived there. There was another friend at Fort Hood that had also been in Panama, in Fort Clayton, in Panama. And she moved from Fort Clayton with her family and was now at Fort Hood. And they had been talking. And she was like, you should come out here. It's safe. It's military community. You are familiar with that. Um, there was a large Hispanic military community. So there was like a Puerto Rican too, because there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in the army I found. Um, so you'll find some family here. Like you'll feel some, some, some connection. So just, just because of divorce and moving to Houston, when you think about all the services that you guys still are entitled to because of your dad, I mean, you still get medical coverage because of huge, you know, so everything that the military provides you, you how now have, Better access. access to. Right. So we were able to get on Fort Hood and go to the doctor and get dentist visits where I don't even know at the time that this was the way it was. Nowadays, you can still go to an off, you know, off facility provider and you pay like a copay or some stuff like that. But this was way easier. She could get on post, get us the, what we needed. We could shop at the PX, you know, um, or the post exchange. Um, and Basically, for people who don't understand that, it's like uh, an all encompassing uh, Walmart. It's a Target. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, or something like that. That's with on basis. Right. Um, and it's tax-free, so you don't pay yep. for, like, sales tax or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, so we moved to Texas. That was it. It was, like, nah, huge. You moved to Colleen, Texas. No. Actually, we moved to Cove. We moved to Copper's Cove. So my mom says we're moving to Copper's Cove or we're going to be, which Copper's Cove is just outside of Fort, Fort Hood. Copper's Cove is, there's a few cities at the time. So I'll tell you at the time, because I haven't been in the area in a familiar way in so long, but at the time there were three big cities and it was, uh, clean. Um, it was Harker Heights was starting off and there was Copper's Cove and there's some under, you know, outlying also cities, at the time too, that were mostly like, if you wanted land and you wanted, you know, like some space, but those were like the, the bigger cities. So clean was right outside of base. Like that's, that's what was there. Um, a lot of crime. Um, it's where like people that were, I'm an E1 through E5. I don't make a lot, you know, or, um, I'm an, a younger officer and I want to be close to the bars and strip clubs and I want to have a good time or, or eat out. All the restaurants were out there, but it was a little busy. Copper's Cove was like the family town that you moved out to. It was an extra 15, 20 minute drive on the highway, but it was further out. And you found that there were, although it was heavy military presence, there were people that were like, oh no, I just, my dad's an architect and I happen to live out here or whatever. The schools also, because of the proximity, were sponsored by the army. So they had military government teachers um, as well as regular contractor i guess you could call them teachers but it was the standard was this is a military quality school so not military training not at all but i mean like military sponsored it for hood said these are the standards you have to keep and we'll continue to fund you kind of thing um so beautiful schools not only that texas has great schools to begin with but great schools with plenty of um tracks to go down so you didn't have to like study all the basic courses you could say hey i want to do a science track and you did anatomy and physiology you did chemistry physics and all this stuff um if you were planning to go to college for something in the science realm or theater it had all these different tracks 
Anyway, so we moved to Copper's Cove, and as we're driving in, my mom is like, yeah, so I found us a house. This is where we're going to live. And I remember pulling into this, like, little T intersection. Like, we went up the hill between, like, a tile, a place that sold tile and, like, a daycare. You know, like, they were on each side of the road. And you went up the road, up the steep hill, and then it turned into, like, a little T intersection dead end, right? And there were all these, um, what do you call them, quadplex? Yeah. Yeah, not duplex, but quadplex. And they were townhouse quadplex. So they were like two stories, but there were four. And right at the top of the hill, I remember we got to the top of the hill and I looked at the other houses and I was like, oh, these are kind of nice, except for that one right there. And guess what we pulled into? That <laughs> one. And I remember we lived in the C unit and we pulled in and it was, it was horrible. It was low income. You know, it was all she could afford, you know? I think she had realized that expensive apartment in Houston, like, yeah, I get child support, but I need to get a job and I need to like live as if, what if I lost my job tomorrow? Right. So we moved into this um, quadplex that was just, it was just two bedroom little thing. I mean, like you walked in and it felt small then, you know, if you, if you remember, I said that that house in Panama felt huge and it's probably tiny. Imagine how much smaller it really was. So we walked in, you had the living room and the dining room was invisible. I mean, it was basically enough space for bar stools. The kitchen was also galley with a little back door. And then you went upstairs and there were two rooms. That's it. Two little rooms. And we lived in one in a bunk bed. And it was me and my brother weren't in a bunk bed. And all we had was space to walk in and jump in the bed. I don't even remember there being a dresser. I think my mom might have put the dresser or the chest in the closet because there, there was no space, not even for a nightstand. Um, and then my mom had a room too, and that was tiny as well. So we lived there for maybe a year, I want to say. And my mom did all kinds of jobs. She did, she worked at a burrito. What is that? I don't even remember the, the name of the burrito, but they still have them in the stores, I'm sure, the frozen ones. Um, she worked there. She worked at a chicken place like a chicken processing place. And I mean, she had all kinds of jobs. I remember her working two jobs easy. You know, she'd go to the burrito place really early in the morning and then she'd work really late at, you know, another place. And then she worked at Sears and she worked at a trailer company, like making trailers. Like her hands still don't close all the way because all that she was like the staple, like she did the baseboards, the nail gun. And because of doing that all day, every day, her hands still don't close the same. But, you know, she was always gone. I mean, she had, she left early in the morning. So that T intersection, we walked down the hill and the bus would pick us up at the bottom of the hill. But the bus would also drop us off and there was a daycare center on the corner and we would stay there. And I don't know what it was, but I think she paid extra for like nighttime sitting because I remember it being dark out and no kids and it was just us. And a lady that used to make French fries with seasoned salt on them. So good. Still remember them. So sweet. But we were there and all workers were gone. All the students were gone. And we were all that was left. So she must have paid like, I'm not going to make it home till 11. I mean, we used to fall asleep. She used to wake up. I remember her waking us up and be like, come on, let's go. So it's, she did everything she could to like meet, you know, make those ends meet, which is something that, you know, when I get in debates with people and they're like, oh, welfare and, you know, subsidy and all that stuff. And, you know, we're very blessed that we live a good life. And, you know, our paths have been not 
easy, but we're in a good place. Um, that there are still people out there that my mom, for example, she went to college and she gave that up for her family, for her husband, because she felt that, well, I have to support him and, you know, I'm going to marry and we're going to be together for the rest of our lives. So it's not like the education can wait. I'm not going to, the husband's not leaving without me. Um, and suddenly that falls apart and you're like, but I've been raising kids for the last 10 years. What, what now? I have no qualifications. So the government was so important and, you know, child support that paid the rent. Yeah. Doesn't go far at all. No. What about clothes and food? You know, all that stuff. So we were on welfare. We had, we were on food stamps and, um, I'll say that I never wanted for anything. People say that it's like the, the line, I never wanted for everything. She got us, she gave us everything we, we needed or we wanted and that's not true. We um we ate like rice and hot dogs because that's all we had. Um, did I ever go to bed hungry? No. We always ate. Not the best meal, but we ate something. Um, did she go hungry? I couldn't tell you that. Maybe. Um, but she worked two jobs and still needed to be on welfare. And we still went without. I mean, I remember, you know, as a kid, you go to school and you're like, well, I want the new shoes. Why do I have these old shoes? I'll say we never had like Goodwill shoes, but we had a lot of Payless shoes. Like my feet are ripping in the back because these shoes are so cheap, you know, but this is all we can afford. The BOGO, buy one, get one. Um, So that went on for a while. Um, So that's, you know, we made it to Texas when I was in fifth grade. I want to say fifth grade. Um, and then my mom decided, you know, I'm going to go to school. I have to do something. I have to go to school. So we saw her even less. So she was able to get a job at at and It was a call center. And she was, you know, bilingual. And she was super hardworking. So she made it to like where she was doing only high like net worth clients, you know, like people that were having issues at very high levels, executives. So she worked at a call center and she, that was night shift. So she went to school all day and then she'd work from three to 11, something like that at the call center. So we didn't see her very much, but, um, she started to have like a career now, you know, she'd go to work in like nice clothes. She wasn't at the burrito factory anymore. She wasn't out in the Texas sun making trailer homes, you know? So she was doing better. She was happier. We were a little better off. We were able to move um, outside of that, out of that duplex into a nice house near the school. Um, and yeah, she continued to progress and went to school for being a medical lab technician. So it's drawing blood, you know, every, the people that get you your results, right? When you go get blood drawn. Um, so she did that for a few years and then something happened my senior year. I went or maybe junior year, um, we moved out of Cove and went to Colleen and we lived in low-income housing. Like that low-income housing that you drive by now and you're like, and they, in the military, we've done training out here where they say, don't go over there, it's dangerous. That's where we lived. And I don't know what it was. I've never even asked, but I assume overextended, like I wanted this really nice house. I thought I could afford it, but I'm going to school. I'm making half the money and I, I can't afford it. We need to like step way back. Not only way back as in we're not going to be paying rent every day, 
or every month, but now we're living in low income housing with huge subsidy and we're on welfare. And not only that, she moved me from the town that I lived in to one that was 20, 30 minutes away, um, 20 minutes away, maybe. Um, now basically the, the, the only close friends that you have your entire life too. Right. But she sacrificed even in that we would wake up early every morning and she would drive us all the way back to Cove for school. Wow. So, and pick us up. So what would happen is my best friend now, my mom asked, can we use your address? So I would ride the bus home to my friend's house and wait for my mom to pick me up after work. So, yeah. I mean, she still was like, you're not going to feel any difference. Your friends will still be the same, but I can't afford to keep us here. Mm. And I think a year or two later, uh, when I was graduating high school, my last year in high school, we moved back to Cove. She found a house that she could afford. She was better off now. She was a medical lab technician now, which now she works night shift. Right. Like, so she was now really always gone. But she made better money, and we could afford, and we found a, a nice house um, to live in. And then I graduated high school, and she ended up buying her dream house uh, a little bit after, and my brother now lives in it with his and his family. So growing up, middle school, high school, your mom's gone most nights. Oh, yeah. You're taking care of your brother, doing school work. Yeah, but you know what? People say that a lot, and even my brother might say that, like, oh, you took care of me growing up, and no, I didn't. I was two years older than him. I was doing my own shenanigans. And no, he fended for himself. He found his own sandwiches and his own food in the, in the fridge. And then I did the same, you know. Um, my mom is a homebody. And as much as my dad um, used to go out and about and party, you know, he's also a homebody. You know, so me and my brother, although we were up to our own stuff as teenagers, we spent a lot of time together on the couch watching TV or just, you know, we might've had people over and stuff like that, but we spent a lot of time together just on the couch. Like it wasn't like either one of us was showing up at the house at 11 o'clock at night on a school night because mom wasn't there. Right. We still were home. You know, I, I don't, when I see people or people talk about that, I'm like, really? You couldn't even fathom it. And both very active. I mean, played soccer yeah. your entire life all through high school. Right, and he played uh, soccer and baseball, and then finally he had to decide between sports because of the seasons, and he went with soccer. But So your high school life, though, managing your school, your soccer, everything else you have going on, but you're also, I mean, working and trying to make money for yourself. Right, so, you know, at 16, um, my mom was able now to pay for the house and pay for the food, and, you know, we were doing better in that sense. But anything extra and above, that was on, on me. So if I wanted to have a car, I was going to pay that car note. If I wanted to have, and the insurance to go with it. And if I wanted to, uh, actually, I think my dad, when I got a car, um, I got a job. Um, my dad said, well, if you're going to have a car, you're going to have a cell phone. You're not going to be running around. This is like in the beginning of phones. I had a, literally a flip phone. And I'm not talking about the flip phone where the, like the face moves, like the earpiece moves up. I'm talking about where the mouth drops, like those. <laughs> Um, these are my favorite stories. That's why I directed you here. So uh, tell me about your jobs. So I worked, my first job was at Wendy's lasted a week. Me and my friend both went in together. We both got hired and I quit after a week. I was like, Oh hell no. Like that's bullshit. Like, no, 
You, and you love Wendy's. I do love Wendy's, but they were, hey, let me tell people out there that like Wendy's, super clean. Like that's why I quit because I was like, I'm tired of cleaning so much. <laughs> like this is ridiculous. Um, the chili is disgusting though, by the way. Don't order the chili. Anyway, so I quit that after a week and was like, I, I still didn't have a car. My mom was dropping me off and picking me up. Um, and then I got a job at Church's Chicken. And I think I was there for two weeks. And I got a job because a couple of the girls from my soccer team worked there. And they're like, oh, yeah, come out. They're hiring or whatever. So I went to churches, worked there with delicious chicken. I mean, I don't know if they do this everywhere. But if you order uh, church's chicken, get like the jalapeno. It comes in a little bag. a little. It's so good. Like, like a whole jalapeno. A whole jalapeno. And I think it's been, it's like pickled, but it's hot. And I don't know. It's so good. My mouth is watering talking about it. And the biscuits are good. So I was there for maybe two weeks and I left because um, this older lady that worked there dropped a whole bucket of hot water on me. Thank uh-uh. God I had the, you know, the Dickies. Right. Well, you know, safety first. And it didn't burn me as bad, but I mean, it cooked me. You know, like I could feel like, oh my God, the hot water. And I mean, I'll say that that's why I quit, but no, I hated it there too. <laughs> well, across the street... There was, next to a Blockbuster, there was this other place, and my best friend worked there, and it was called Big League Burgers. Big League Burgers was, like, this old guy owned it that was super inappropriate. Today, he'd be, he'd be like, in prison because he was, like, so inappropriate and, like, would rub our backs, and it was just gross. His name was Sam. To, like, 16, 17-year-old. Yeah, he was disgusting. We knew, oh, my God, Sam's coming. Hide. You know, like, avoid him. Um, and... It was Big League Burgers was what it was called. And it was based off Sonic. Like, it wasn't drive-thru. It was drive, like, two drive-thrus on each side, but it wasn't drive-up, like Sonic. However, we had every flavor of slushy you could think of. I mean, you could get a chocolate cherry Dr. Pepper. Like, it was just like, we had every pump you could pump into a soda. And people came there because they were like, I want, and a lot of people just order the drinks. Like, yeah, I want a cherry limeade, but I want to pay three bucks i want to pay 99 cents um so yeah i started working there my senior year i worked there the whole year i worked myself uh i eventually was like i'm not making enough i'm about to graduate i need to pay for this car note for this insurance and i got college like um high school pictures coming like you know graduation photos and my diploma and all that stuff like i need to like get make more money so I told the job, I was like, I can only work three times a week. I'm going to get this job in clean at Poncho's. Don't ask me how I got this Poncho job and what made me like apply. But Poncho's is a Mexican food. Think Mexican slash Brazilian steakhouse. This is why I compare the two. Mexican as in, in like a Piccadilly's, like a, a, a cafeteria feel. And the reason I say this is because you show up and it's like a cafeteria line and you look up at the thing. I still don't remember how the pricing went. I don't think I ever understood it. But you'd pick like a combo. Two enchiladas, a taco, and rice and beans. And you'd be like, yeah, I want a number two. And they'd be like, oh, okay, what flavor enchiladas do you want? And you would pick out of the tray on the cafeteria line the enchiladas that you wanted. And then you check out. There's a cashier, a caf- you know, cashier, cashier at the end of the line. And then you would sit down. And you would just go to town and eat and they would bring you chips and salsa and whenever you ran out of something 
you would flip, you would raise a little Mexican flag. So almost like, you know, Brazilian steakhouse where you flip yeah, the yellow red. and the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you would raise a little Mexican flag and the waitress would come out and be like, how can I help you? And be like, I'll have more sour cream enchiladas. And there's, there's no way this business is still around. It is. That's incredible. It's still around. And you would eat and eat and eat and eat until you couldn't anymore. And then they had like this amazing sopapillas like window. <laughs> you would just like load up. Anyway, I lasted there. Maybe like two weeks, a month, maybe. I mean, the drive was just sucked. Um, but I was talking about it at Big League Burgers, and one of the managers was like, well, why do you have two jobs? I'm like, well, I mean, you got to think I had two jobs. I played soccer and track. And by track, I mean, like, I just ran at practice because I was so slow that they were like, <laughs> we're not. I did one track meet, and I was legit the last person to finish, like, a 1,400 meter. It was, it was bad. I say 1,400. It might have been 400. <laughs> I was so slow. Was How like, many laps? Oh, I think it was just one. Uh, yeah, 400. Yeah, 400. But I don't, I don't, I think it was just one. It was bad though. I, re I remember it was bad. So anyway, so I had Wait, these. Wait, why, why were you in track? Because our soccer coach was like off season. You will continue to maintain your lung right. capacity. So he put us in, in track. So um, I had two jobs and two sports that I had to do. Um, so I was busy. And I was just exhausted. And the, one of the managers at Big League was like, well, why don't you become a manager here? And I'm like, oh. She's like, I mean, it doesn't pay you any more than you make now hourly. But you'll work the whole shift. You'll come here at 5 o'clock. And you won't leave till, till 10 every night. 11 maybe. So, perfect. So I quit ponchos. And I started working at Big League full time like as a manager. And... I work four or five times a week. I mean, I don't know how I had the energy to play a sport, go to practice, and then go work a five-hour shift. And then still get work and pass and get A's and B's. Um, it was definitely, I can't believe I did it back then. Um, but you're it was just, a great experience. You're your best friend. Yeah, but it was... An experience for sure. We were exhausted. We had no business as 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds running a restaurant. I mean, we still laugh about the pickle bucket. It was like a big pickle bucket that we would sit on and just gossip and talk in the back. And, you know, when you pull up to a drive-thru, there's like a ding that goes off that lets everybody know a car pulled up. We would turn off all the lights so we wouldn't have to answer the cars. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like, it's 8.30. What do you mean? Or we'd be like, oh, we're out of meat. They'd be like, what? Like... Who's to say? Big League Burgers went bankrupt. A year after I left, by the way. Okay. I think the statute of limitations is over on this. So what right. other shenanigans were you guys doing as you managed this Big League Burger? I mean, I remember one of the other managers uh, coming in and, like, grabbing an entire box of tomatoes. I was like, oh, we're having a barbecue and left with the box of tomatoes. I feel really bad about it now as a grown-up. But at the time, I was like, what is she doing? Anyway, I went back to work. Um, and maybe some people we've talked about it now we're all adults and grown ups, and some people laugh and they're like, well, I mean, he deserved it. He groped us and all this other oh. stuff. Like this is his payment for whatever. Anyway. So after big league burgers, so I was doing that senior year and I, throughout this whole time, I was like, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to go to college? Like I have to go to college. I have to do something. Um, my parents at the time were in a place where they weren't speaking very much. So it wasn't like I could sit down with most of my parents and be like, what is our game plan for me? 
it was kind of on my own. Um, being that I had a dad that was in the military, my mom was like, join the military. Seems like a good idea. So I joined the military, um, thinking, well, I went to the recruiter's office thinking that I would go in there and be like, I'm going to be a doctor. And the recruiter was like, we don't do that. What recruiter? Uh, air force. Because, um, my dad was like, don't join the army, go to the air force. So you talked to your dad about this. I did because he was like, yeah, join the military. I think they were like, we can't afford to send you to college. Right. And nobody was really thinking scholarships, which and is the, obviously what I would told my kids. Right. At the time, your dad's like a E7, E8, getting probably like 15, 16 years active duty, mm-hmm. getting close to retirement time. So understands the full breadth of what different branches can offer you. Right. And he was like, don't join the army. You're going to be outside in the dirt all the time. Um, and... I didn't even think Coast Guard, Marine Corps, definitely not. And the only one I thought of was the Navy was another option. So Air Force and Navy were my two options. And I remember thinking, uh, looking into the Navy and seeing at the time, they were like, well, women can't serve on these ships and they can't do that. They can't do this. And I was like, why would I ever be in a job where I can't do everything? Right. Or in a a service. Why not? And second of all, like, all right, cool. Then I'm just not going to do that. Exactly. So um, the Air Force was something that anything that I was kind of interested in was like open to me. And I didn't get the vibe that anything was no women allowed. Right. So I went with the Air Force and I went into what they call delayed entry program. So I enlisted in like December of 2000 delayed entry. Um, So I signed up. I committed. And then in July, I went off to the military. Um in December, when I went to delayed entry, you go through like the whole process and they like do your whole physical and you're like, the first time that you're like, what do you mean get naked in front of people? Um, but I tested, I'd done my ASVAB and they were like, well, one good news and bad news. The bad news is you can never pick up a wrench or do anything electrical. I scored that bad on it. <laughs> the good thing is you scored really high overall and you can do Intel. And I was like, oh, I don't know what Intel is, but I think my dad does that. He said, you know, and when I told my dad, he was very excited about it. So I was like, okay. So I showed up to delayed entry and they were like, oh, congratulations. You got Intel. I was like, oh, I had signed up for medical too. And there was no medical. They were like, no, we don't have that available. You got Intel. You're skipping part of this too. Medical because like part of your, in high school, not only you're working these jobs, not only you're doing soccer, you're also like taking you know, part of the tracks that you talked about was medical and you, you were offered right. an opportunity to go work like, you know, a couple hours every day So the, at a nursing home. Well, this school had a track and it had like a CNA program, so certified nursing, nursing assistant program. And you would do, you know, we had four, uh, four classes a day, eight total, you know, eight different classes. Um, we do four one day, four the other day. And this CNA program was every morning. So you would do, it actually took up two of your classes. And at the end, you could test and get certified as a certified nursing assistant, which I was like, oh, why not? Why not get certified? Sounds cool until they tell you what you have to do to get it. Well, you only have to test to get it. However, the first year was like, yeah, just learn like CPR and all the other stuff. And then the second year was, all right, we're going to go do like time at the nursing home or at the hospital. We we did go to hospital. I did go to like... as a teenager, I did attend multiple births. I ended up in labor and delivery. 
And by a 10, I mean, I literally stood there and was like, what the fuck's happening? I had provided no service or help. <laughs> I just stood there and was like, oh my God, they're cutting her open. And then the nursing home, which was horrible. I mean, horrible. Like it smelled like rotten urine and if bed sores and just wiping and cleaning and literally as a CNA, all you do is clean balls and boils, balls and boils as <laughs> all you do. So I was like, I just, I can't do this. This is horrible. And it stinks. It's disgusting. And these old men are super perverted. They like grab your butt and stuff. And you're like, what the heck? Like, not for me. So I never tested. I spent no time. But the reason why I looked in CNA was A, because I wanted to like, this is interesting. I'm into science. But I think what I didn't mention was that my mom did do med lab tech, but her mom was a nurse. Her sister was a nurse. You know, like everybody had been in the medical nursing specifically. Um, growing up so I kind of was exposed to that I was like I, I could do that so I joined the military there's no medical available like you're doing intel and I was like okay I guess that'll work and I got all source so what that means in the air force is that you don't do anything specific um you do everything so they call it the jack of all trades but master like of none kind of thing so I'm not like a specialized at imagery I'm not specialized as, at human human intelligence or signals intelligence but I understand it all enough to translate that to leadership as a big picture, right? Or that was the intent, that I would understand it enough. So um, I joined, I went off to the military on 25 July, 2001. And so shortly, two, what, three weeks after I turned 18. So I went off to the military. Um, I often talk about that moment where, you know, you wake up, Obviously, everybody talks about the pick up, put it down, pick up, put it down. The bags when you first arrive and you realize, oh, shit, this isn't as rosy as my recruiter was. Um, and then I got to, you know, the, the dorms, we call them the dorms, the, the bays. And uh, the next morning woke up and, you know, and they're like, get up, fuck up, get up, get up, get up. And you're like, what was I thinking? Like, uh, it's like six in the morning and you're like. What? Your hair is crazy. Like, you're just like, I don't even know what side is up. Um, and I built amazing friendships that I still have in basic training. Um, obviously, social media has helped to keep in touch, but great friendships. And uh, went off to my first duty station. So I had, um, actually, no, I went to, to tech school first, obviously. So after I graduated basic training, which basic training for the Air Force was, I don't know if it still is, this was 20 years ago, was six weeks. So we did six weeks and then I went off to Intel school, a good fellow Air Force base in San Angelo, Texas. Pretty big date happened while you're in basic training though. No, nothing happened while I was in basic training. It was just, this is great. This is, I'm almost done. I'm progressing. So I get to Intel school. My first day is Monday, September 11th. And I show up to, you know, what I want to say actually, was September 11th, a Tuesday? I think it was. Okay. So Monday is when the bus arrives and you are like, I've made it. I've left basic training and here I am at my school. But my first day where it was like, your duty place is at the conference room in such and such building. You will show up in your uniform um, we'll, we'll see you there. Starts at eight o'clock sharp. So I show up at eight o'clock and I remember it was like a little, uh, conference room. 
like a rectangle shaped conference room, not big. And it had these long tables, you know, two rows of long tables, two rows of long tables. And there's, we're all kind of in there like, oh, hey, what's up? Oh yeah, we're real now. Like we can speak, you know, you spend like these six weeks in basic training. We're like, don't talk to anybody. (laughs) Don't even make eye contact. So this is the first time that we're like, oh, I can, I can be human. Right. I'm an adult again. Yeah. Right. Like, Hey, what's up? Where are you from? Like, what did you do? Blah, blah, blah. And in comes in this, um, honestly, if I were to see him today, I would recognize him. He comes in and he's wearing, he's wearing short, short shorts, like short, like I'm a runner. Like he looks like he just came in from a run. He's got a t-shirt on. He's wearing a white shirt, black shorts, and he's got black hair. And it's like, you know, the Air Force cut. It's professional, but it's a little long at the top. And he's like out of breath. And he stands up and he says, hello, everybody. Um, life as you know it will never be the same. The Twin Towers have been destroyed. We've been attacked. And I looked up at him and I was like, is this an exercise? And I look around like, this isn't real. First of all, I didn't even know what the World Trade Center was. I grew up in Texas, high school in Texas, and I grew up in Panama. Like, I, I had no idea what the World Trade Center was. And I'm like, this is an exercise. I say this because even in basic training, you know, you go, through, we call it Warrior Week. And at Warrior Week is when you go to war, you know, and you go out and you live in a tent and you learn how to shoot. You learn how to, you know, like, be at war, you know, what the Air Force at the time considered to be war. So in the beginning of that, they come into like the big auditorium because they have so many, you know, flights, we call them flights of trainees that are about to go into Warrior Week. So it's hundreds of people, hundreds of students. So they come into the auditorium and announce, we are under attack. So, and then we roll right into war. Well, I am sitting in this conference room and he comes in and says, we were just attacked. The world as you know, it will never be the same. And I'm thinking, Oh, I thought a, we were done with this. Another scenario. Here another, we go. Here we go. And it takes maybe a minute where he continues to talk. And they this is old school. This isn't flat screen life. This is they roll the TV in on the the the, the thing. Dolly. The dolly. <laughs> yeah, they roll it in with the dolly and they turn it on. It's like it turns on and the news is on. And he says when he put it on, I was like, there was this moment where like, you know, in the movies where it kind of like, where it kind of like zooms out and he pulls in the TV and it turns on and we see that one of the towers is on fire and we're like, what? And he's like, we've been attacked. I don't know how he knew. Cause I remember at the time it was like, Oh, was it an accident or not? I don't know what it was, but he knew there's a life-changing event right now. And I remember him rolling the TV in and the second plane hit. And I remember that moment where like the air got sucked out of the room and it was almost like a trance. I remember like it went quiet, but in the background I could hear wailing, you know, like people screaming, like my mom works in that building, you know, in there. I don't even know why it makes me emotional to this day, but the, the trauma, you know? And I didn't at one moment think, 
wait a minute, I joined to go to college. <laughs> what do you mean? Right. So it was very, it was definitely that moment that you see in movies where you're like, the air is out of the room. So people started screaming. My mom works in that building. I need to get on the phone. Um, but you got to think we're all 18, 18, 19. We're petrified. We don't even know how like vocal we can be about our concerns. And I don't even know what happened. I know that they like rushed us out of the room and said, let people call who they need to call. But it was just, it was lit. It was happening. It was actively happening. So it wasn't like everything's under control. We know what we're doing. Like, no, no, this was, you got to think that these bases didn't know, are all the bases going to be attacked? We're on the Intel training base for the United States military. Are we next? And we're in the schoolhouse building. You're like, is that the next stop? So, I remember, and the best way I can describe it was almost like looking through a straw. And maybe and that was just like a trance that I was in at the moment. But I remember we ended up at the chow hall. And I don't know if that's where they were putting us all. Because, I mean, at 8 o'clock is when all this happened. So I don't think it was lunchtime yet. But I remember being in the chow hall and through the straw, like very like thin. Like I don't know what was what I was thinking um seeing i remember i could identify her today um woman that was in an e7 so if air force so big rank on her shoulder you know so it's you know the chevron with the line at the top and as a young 18 year old with two little little stripes on your arm that's a person of power. That's a person that knows what's happening or like, oh, that's my guy. That's my, my leader. And she was hysterical, hysterical. It was like this, like she couldn't find a phone. She was asking people as they walked by for, do you have a phone? Cause you know, not everybody had a cell phone. Um, she was a student at the time. So she had probably cross-trained or retrained to be Intel. And so she was a student as well. So she had students don't have access to phones or anything like that. Not yet not until you get settled. So she's going back and forth asking, does anybody have a phone? Um, people are like, people are running towards the gates. Like, you got to think we're students or nobody, but the base itself, special forces or security forces and leadership are all talking about who's going to the gate, grab your weapon. You know, like they're thinking they have to protect the base. There's people on roofs, like people that have no business being on roofs with guns, but it was like, this is war. You know, like everybody pick up something except for us students that were like in a I honestly could not tell you what else was going on. I was in a like a trance, like what's what's happening. I wasn't emotional then. I remember I was like, what now? And I think in situations of stress, I tend to be a lot less emotional than, you know, maybe like looking back. I'm like, oh, my God, can't believe I made it. But at the time, I'm pretty calm in stress and I remember just being like, what do we do next? Where do I go? Tell me where to go. And it's like it all passed. Like it was just like life is different. And I remember our curriculum was very, at the time, focused on Soviet Union and Korea. And it, it hadn't changed yet. I finished my entire course and it was still, you know, six, six months of school. I finished all that with still the same Korea curriculum. I'm sure everybody after that had a very different curriculum. But yeah, so September 11th was my first day 
as active duty, like a real day. Um, so I don't know what it's like to, to serve in the military in peacetime. I don't. It's never been an experience I've had. So I finished school. I went to Davis Monthan, Arizona. I did five years there. Tucson. Where, what did I say? Oh, yeah. It was Monthan. It's in Tucson. So I did five years there. Um, I deployed multiple times. So uh, as many people might remember, you know, September 11th happened and lots of people went out to Afghanistan. I was not part of that wave. However, when everything happened with Saddam Hussein and we're like, Operation Iraqi Freedom is going down. Um, I was involved in that one. Um, again, keep in mind, I was E3 and E4, so I was very young. I was an intel analyst. Went to Nazaria, Tulil, Iraq, um, Tulil Air Force, or Tulil Air Base, Tulil Air Base. Um, I did a few months there. I came home. I came back, did more months, and then we relocated to different bases. We, as, you know, a heavy aircraft i worked with ec-130s we typically have to be a little bit of a standoff just because we're not a fighter jet and at the time you know um the iraqis were still roaming around you know like shooting stuff down or attempting to so i did that i did a few of those deployments and i think four or five with ec-130s and that's where i really got you know like exposure to being deployed and living in like a horrible tent with no AC or like half-ass AC and um, knowing what it's like to live in completely blackout conditions because they'll kill you if they see you. You know, like it was, it was a different uh, feeling, especially before arriving in Iraq. I remember calling, you know, we stopped to refuel and I remember calling my parents and being like, I love you. You know, like I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know war. <laughs> I thought I was going to college for free. So I called my parents that, you know, said I love them and, you know, that I miss them and that I would talk to them as soon as I could. And then I got on a C-130 slick. So that means nothing on it. It's just a carrier of people. And I, we landed in Southern Iraq. And I remember the moment where you know, we're on the plane and, you know, everything's really loud. It's all shaking. And the pilot or the loadmaster, you know, the guy that kind of walks around in the back says, don your gear. And everybody pulls out their helmets and their, their, their vests. And I'm like, Oh God. So I put on my vest, which at the time was like this ridiculously oversized thing. <laughs> and this helmet was just over the top. And I put my stuff on and uh, the pilot comes over and says, all right, everyone strap in and prepare for combat descent. And I was like, what the hell's combat descent? And that plane dropped, like, if you think about a roller coaster and that moment where your stomach goes into your throat, it did that. And then it banked on its side to the point where I remember holding on to the netted seats. Like, like it felt like a carnival ride. And he'd bank, and he'd bank back, and then he'd drop again, and he'd bank, and he'd bank, and he'd drop again. And it was like, and you could smell the fuel, you know, C-130s, you can smell it all. Um, and as we get closer, um, it's and it's not this long, like, oh, taxiing on the runway. No, 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 no. Before we could hit the ground, he said, prepare to exit aircraft hastily. Um, 
and or post haste, like quick, quick. And we landed and they literally say, go, 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 go. They open the back of the plane and they tell us to grab our stuff. Like we knew what we were doing and basically run ducked down the roadway where there would be a runway while there would be a bus waiting for us to jump on because they were scared that there were going to be snipers to like shoot us as we got off. Now, looking back and knowing what we know now, Iraqis didn't know what the hell they were doing. They were, they were like not even watching us. But the fear, right. you know, was was intense. It was a lot, you know, to be like, what did I get myself into? And then once you get there, you have this shitty tent that everybody's like, yeah, you put it together. I'm like, I don't, put together. I don't even like camping. So put together this tent and then no bathrooms, porta potties. Um, we had grabbed these like old buildings that uh, huts and put doors on them. And been like, this is where we're going to work. This is the new skiff. This is where we're going to, you know, work on top secret stuff. And we were still getting bombed, though. We were still getting um, incoming. And I remember, you know, now, you know, the years later, incoming to me is, oh, not to take worth off of incoming. People die from incoming every not day. Not to downplay it by any means. But. Right, at all. But you get so used to it. It's almost like earthquakes. People yeah. die in earthquakes, but you get used to earthquakes and you're like, oh yeah, there's one happening, stand here. Or how bad is it? You know, you kind of wait, feel it out. Is it going to get worse? So when you have incoming now, you hear it, you, you feel it, you're like, okay, that was just one. It didn't feel too close back to what I was doing, right? You, you listen, you assess, and you move on. Well, in the beginning incoming you're like oh my god somebody's trying to kill us you know and i remember being you know prior to you know gwat global war on terror we were like russia korea nbc gear don your gear and i remember them i'm an e3 and i remember thank god there was an e2 in the group and they were like put your gear on and go outside and breathe they really thought that we had like we could be chemed and protocol says you send your lowest ranking to go out and breathe. And if they start to like flop around, there's an issue. So it was just a different world. It was very different. I learned a lot. Um, grew up pretty fast. You know, like this is a whole other world. I mean, this was when you were sending postcards home. Like literally there was no like get on your Wi-Fi and FaceTime your family. There was no, you had to stand in line for hours to use the phone for 15 minutes. Like, or an email. Like, it was, like, old school AOL. Like, it wasn't where we are now, you know? So it was really, it felt very different. So um, did that a few times. And then left Arizona. I put in for orders. I was like, I need I need to change. And I got Korea. I got uh, Osan Air Force Base or Air Base. Osana Air Base in Korea. And I had a blast. It was such a great experience to see the country, eat the food, drink the soju. It was just like such a great time. And it was also when um, Kim Jong-il, dad, passed away, was uh, conducting tons of rocket attacks, like testing out his gear. So we were super busy. Um, and it still felt like we were doing something that was worth something versus just monitoring. So typically your tour in Korea is a year. So I did my year. Unaccompanied is typically how people go there. If you go with your family, which not everybody gets the choice to do or the option, um, you can go for two or more, but I only did one. And 
because I went to Korea, I got to choose or give a wish list of where I wanted to go next. And I picked, I think my first choice was uh, Germany. And I picked that because your previous guest, Chris Hicks, was in Germany. So I was like, I know somebody there, so I can go there. And then I picked Italy, and I picked, like, a few other places, and I got Italy. And at the time, I was like, oh. You didn't pick Nebraska or? Where it snows? No. Somewhere in the Dakotas. You didn't want to go to Minot. No, nothing like that. So I pick, I get Italy. I'm, like, kind of disappointed at first. I'm like, oh, that sucks. Well, let me tell you. I got to Italy, and I was like, this is heaven. How am I this lucky? The air was just like the most amazing, fresh, clean, crisp, smelling laundry. Um, the vineyards, the people, it was just a whole, I would never trade that experience. It was such a beautiful place to live. We traveled a lot, saw a lot of places. And I got maybe, you know, my tour was two years. After that tour, I could get out. So I said, yeah, I want to get out. I want to move on at the time the air force was doing what they called a band system i'm not sure what they do now but what they were doing was everybody's going to deploy for six months and then come home for six months so i thought well i want to have kids someday i want to like have this life at that time you know i had been in the military for seven years at that point so what i was 25 24 25 so i was like i can't i need i need to start a family so i decided i'm going to do one more deployment just to kind of like settle my debts. And I didn't have debt. I lived in Italy, so it's not like I had credit card debt. But um, I wanted to kind of save up a bunch of money so when I moved, I could like start a new life. So I said, okay, yeah, I wanted to deploy. Um, and my senior enlisted advisor was like, oh, here's a list of places. Where would you like to go? And they weren't really, pl- they were places, but they were more like billets. Like these are the positions that are available for your position. And um, there was a column that was labeled HRC and it was called, which stands for high risk of capture. And I was like, oh, that seems interesting. So I basically filtered by HRC and I picked this position that was um, in, ba- in Baghdad. And I was like, I want to go there position one two dash forty two six seven you know and the my ea was like okay cool i'll push your name up for it you're good to go you know we'll we'll start to get you know orders and reporting and training instructions for prior to your deployment you know all that stuff will come in so i think a week or two later he's like hey yari bad news um baghdad's already been filled is there anything else you want to pick i was like what's the next on the list balad (laughs) i think it would have been alphabetical and i was like yep HRC, Balad. I want to go there. And you had already been to Balad once, right? No. I've never been. I thought Chris said that you guys did a Balad rotation. No. I'd oh. never been to Balad with him. It was the first time I'd been. Okay. He's been, but right. not with me. Um, so I uh got Balad and they were like, Good news, it's not HRC anymore. You're good. You don't have to do SEER school. But you need to do uh, training, and it's like two weeks prior to everything, and then you need to do all these other things, and then you can go to your final location. So I arrive at Fort Bragg, and I'm like, let's go. And I have two weeks of training just to kind of get an idea of, like, what the the task force is about, what they do, um, what the background is. And then we ship off, and I make it to Balad. Well, 
before actually leaving, they sat us all down. They were like, okay, everybody, we have the list of where you're going to be going. And they tell me, um, they give everybody off what they're going to do. And um, everybody gets like exploitation facility. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? I have to Google and ask questions. I'm super excited. And they're like, oh, yeah, Yari, you're going to be an operations officer. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, we'll brief you on it like later. So they pull everybody aside, you know, and I happen to be with like a really good friend of mine now, but Kim, my friend Kim was with me and she got, you know, exploitation facility. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. So they tell her what she's going to be doing. They pull us both into this room and they tell her, hey, um, you're going to be doing this, 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 and you're going to be doing this. You're the tip of the spear. You're going to be doing this. And I was like, oh my God, that's cool. I'm like sitting next to her, (laughs) super excited. And then they look over at me and they're like, and you're going to be operations officer. You're going to be scheduling the flights. And I was like, you know, it was like this deflation. I was like, what? Like, no way. Like, I I think I might've cried, honestly, like in private, like this sucks. Like scheduling flights, like this is not what I want to do. So something happened where Kim went off a week before me. I don't know what happened, but she went a week ahead. So I'm still sitting in Fort Bragg and I finally get my flight and I get out there and she's like, hi, what's up? I arrived to the exploitation facility and she's like, oh my God, hey, oh, you have to come over here and meet my friend Dan Hess, you know, which is a really good friend of ours still. And I show up and he's like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, Hi. And Kim says, she would be great for this position. Are you sure like, we can't keep her here? I mean, we, we do have like an opening. And he's like, oh, I don't know. You know, you know, the senior analyst makes that decision, which another person that we know very well. And the senior analyst calls me and everyone else that had just landed that day into uh, the conference room, debriefing room. And we're sitting there and he asks each of us one by one, how do you process problems? Like, how's your, like, mind work? How do you get through it? And I remember explaining, like, yeah, I mean, I'm a visual person. I like to, like, draw stuff out first. You know, if I were to write a paper, I like to outline it first and then kind of draw out where I'm going to go. And then I do my final thing. Um, And thank God I said that because he wanted someone who thought visually and could depict things visually. And the guy next to me, oh, thank God, he was like, uh, he just had a horrible answer. It was just like, really like that answer, bro. So he made the call. Then he was like, you're going to stay here. Yari, you're going to go be an operations officer, dude, like whoever he was and life changing for multiple reasons. Um, it exposed me to not that the operations officer wouldn't have, it would have just not been as in depth, maybe from an outside looking in, but being an exploitation analyst really opened my mind to like, what hard work is, it's probably the first job in my life that I would go home and cry at the end of the day. I always felt like, at least for the first month, I cried every day. I was like, why isn't this easy? Everything's always easy. Like, why don't I understand it? Why am I not grasping it? Um, and eventually I got the swing of things and I loved it. I like really enjoyed it and really felt that, um, really got to know myself and realized that my mind works a little differently. I get bored quickly. So if I can have something that's really challenging that keeps me engaged, but then moves off my plate and I can move on to the next challenging thing, I'm better at what I do um, or just better at anything that you give me if I'm challenged and there's change in it. So I learned that about myself in that job. But then also 
um, I met you, which you came in maybe three months after I had been there. Um, and I was not a fan. <laughs> I remember being like super busy and I had like this interrogator that I was working with. And he was like, hey, you know, good news. You know, we have this new guy. He's going to be uh, working with me and I'm going to transition stuff to him. And here you showed up. And I remember just being sour. Like, why do I get the new guy? I don't have time for this. I don't have time to teach somebody new. And you were very like, yep, I'm here to learn. And, you know, very like to the point, no conversation. You just kind of sat behind the seasoned guy and like, listened, took notes, didn't say anything, uh, which I appreciated because I was not interested in socializing with you. Like this new guy. Great. And then you went off and, you know, learned and did great. And somehow um, you and I ended up on two different tracks. There are obviously different topics that each of us focused on or different, you know, mission sets. And you ended up on a different one. So you were working with like my counterparts on other stuff, um, busy working, but I was busy and working on this side. And I remember there was one where you happened to be on my stuff and I worked, Kim was like one shift and I was the other shift. So we worked together, but she wrote all your stuff because she was the opposite shift for you. So you might've came out and told me this is what I got, but I didn't write your questions. She did. And that happened to be the case on that one. And I remember that specific day she had been working late and what, like, you know, I had been on shift for two hours already and she was still there. So she was already on her 14 hours and was like, all right, I'm sorry. I just got these questions done. I'll go ahead and give them to Cody. Like I'll go brief them up so you don't have to worry about it. I was like, oh, great. I'm busy enough on other stuff. So she was like, I'll give them to Cody, but if you want to come with me while I brief them on them, that way you know why I'm asking these questions. And I was like, oh, cool. And I walked over and she's briefing you up and you're like super personable with Kim. And then to me, you like kind of looked at me over your shoulder like, oh yeah, and this girl, I'll have to debrief. And I was like, this asshole. And I was like, okay. So this cements how much I don't like you. Okay. So... I don't even know what happened. I think uh, another friend of ours, Christine, that sat like next to me, she really liked you. And if she, you guys would see each other in the hallways and you guys would socialize. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Everybody liked me, but you. But yeah, I don't like, because <laughs> that one moment, I think. So anyway, that changed. We eventually spoke, got along really well. Um, and yeah, and I remember you were just like, after we, the hump, I remember looking at you and being like, nice he's gonna find like a good girl whoever he finds is gonna be so lucky and you gotta think you're three and a half years younger than me and at the time you had no facial hair so you looked 12 <laughs> i was growing a mustache <laughs> take that back okay. i was growing a mustache at the time there wasn't much to show but i the solid attempt was there attempt and it was just not <laughs> not the business so i was like uh, yeah he's nice but he's so young oh my gosh and yeah you grew on me Definitely, we built a great relationship, and I don't want to say started to date while we were out there because nobody's dating, but we definitely made that decision of, hey, let's see where this goes after this. So we kept in contact. I know that you left, and I still had like two more months left, and after that two months, you went back to Arizona, and I had a friend that still lived in Arizona from when I was stationed there, Um, so I was like, oh, yeah, we'll meet up. And yeah, it was definitely that trip that was like, oh, this is going to go somewhere. We're going to be in a relationship. We're going to try and work this out. 
So I went back to uh, Italy already knowing, okay, I did that deployment I was going to do. I'm going to get out. My plan before meeting you was I'm going to go to Tampa, um, which is even more cemented from this deployment because this deployment was very Middle East focused, which, you know, sent common SOCOM out of Florida. So I was like, it's perfect. You know, you had just gotten orders to Georgia. So we knew you were going to be in Georgia. And I said, well, I don't think I want to move to Georgia. I mean, I'm not married to this guy. I'm not going to Georgia, but I can be in Florida and the job was going to pay me good money, definitely good money for the time. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that job and I'll fly up every month or so to come visit him. And that's what we'll do. And I think I hadn't even left Italy yet. And we were like, <laughs> or, you know, your proposal was. You can, you can tell people. Your that. proposal was. So why don't you go online and see what paperwork we have to fill out? So we're on the phone and yeah. obviously thinking of. I was thinking of the fact that Yari is going to move to Tampa and be apart from me. She's already in Italy apart. I don't want that to happen. So me thinking like at the time I need to get this girl somehow to Georgia. I need to get her to be with me. So it made the most sense to me to be, I see all my other friends married or getting married primarily because of BAH, not because of which is your housing allowance. Yeah. Your housing allowance. Somebody's paying you. You make more money. Government pays you more if you're you're married because there's not just one mouth to feed. There's two mouths to feed. You need to put a roof over their head. So in the most awkward and something that I wish I could go back and change the most probably now, I'd say, you know, instead of this, why, why don't we just look up online and figure out what we need to do, the steps to, to get you to Georgia. And you're kind of like, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, we probably just get married. Yeah, something similar. I feel like this is a, you put it out like it was a long conversation. It was like just a quick statement. Yeah, why don't you just book up the paperwork and uh, I'll fill it out. Look up the paperwork, pick out a ring online. (laughs) By the way, give me your credit card number because you got to pay for it. Exactly. So uh, Uh, when's your stuff going to get sent here? Exactly. So I, um, yeah, I changed my stuff to be delivered in Georgia instead of Tampa, where I had already gotten a job offer. You gave up the job. Yes. You gave up your new life. Yes. And was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to Georgia. There's nothing in Georgia for me to do, like coming straight off the street. But I could go back to that exploitation facility for 365 days. So Cody was going to be in a lot of training. So it made sense that, you know, you being in this training that I would, I'm going to be, you're going to be gone anyway. Like, why don't I go? So left Italy, got to Georgia. Um, Cody was in ranger school, a pre-ranger. And he got out of pre-ranger. There was like the gap between pre-ranger and ranger school. And literally got out like, and you also had an infection. So I think they like let you go a couple days early. Yeah, I had cellulitis in my right heel. Yeah. So you got out a couple, I think Thursday. So we got married on Friday. We were the last people to get married. I think they call it, we eloped. At the Muskogee County Courthouse on Friday. I won't say a little, but yes, Justice of the Peace. So we did that. And then you went back to training. I stayed at home and like was like, where is this furniture at? Let me make a home out of this place. He also wrote letters, threw me food over the fence occasionally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I I was not gone yet because it was taking a while for my clearance from the military to come over to the contract company that I worked with. So when I finally got out of there, it was July or no, 
I got out of the military in March. So yes, in July, I finally got all the paperwork done and taken care of. And I went to back to Iraq. And you and I communicated through that time. Do you want to close this door or? No, it's fine him? for everybody. Uh, we, we, you guys don't hear it, but our, our blue healer is on the floor in between us right now, snoring and having a heck of a dream chasing yeah. something. Right. So um, I got to Iraq. I did my year where you were going to ranger school. I missed that. Um, and a lot of events. And then I came home during the holidays. The first time I had met your family, they were like, who is this girl? Right. Um, and you hadn't even told anybody you were married. So it was we're like, engaged. yeah, <laughs> quote unquote engaged. Um, so I met his family and then we actually went right after that, went to see my family. So the first time Cody met my family as well and then came back home and I went right back to Iraq. Which looking back on it, it blows my, the, it, culturally on your side, there is this big courting phase to dating, to asking for hand in marriage. I did not do any of that. And I don't think, like, when I talked to your dad about getting married, he was just like, yeah, of course. No big deal. I didn't know that you ever spoke to my dad about it. Yeah. I'm shocked. Well, I don't know when you spoke to him because it was clearly after we were married. <laughs> Theoretically. Of course. He was true. like, of course he was like, no, nah, no big deal. It's already a done deal. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, did my year um, towards the end of the year. You were already in regiment. You were already working. You were um, going out and deploying. And you were actually deployed while I was deployed. So although we were in different countries, um, we were both kind of in the same time zone in theory. Um, and then you had a helicopter crash. And I remember being devastated. I think, you know, when you see, and I've said this before, and it's not for insensitivity, but I think for for a good, you know, kind of understanding of it. When you're in a community where people go out every day and risk their lives, and me, not being someone who goes out, I support from the back. Um, when we have video footage or ISR, you know, predator coverage, you see these people in IR and they look like little black ants. And I don't mean that to like diminish the worth of every life. But I say that because as someone who sees it every day, you have to desensitize yourself to it. So you look at it almost like, okay, this action is happening. What is next? All right, how do I support that next step? You have to be very unemotional in it. So I think it was that moment that I had always been unemotional and seen like, okay, this is what's happening. And then to realize that there, that no, not this one. You're going to have emotion with this one. So I think that was something that was very hard for me. But also the fact that that was the moment where, you know, we had been at the time and continued to be after that. We found a, a rhythm where we were very work oriented. And it was very like, well, you're going to deploy, high five, then I'll deploy. And then, you know, we'll make sure that when we're here at the same time that we have, you know, quality time. But it was very, it was that moment where I thought, no. I've been deployed for 11 months now. My husband and I have been married that long and I've, I, he could have died yesterday. This isn't me being here working as a contractor because I need the money, not because I'm an active duty service member and that's what I took an oath to do, but because I got out and I have a job that I have a passion for that's not worth me 
looking back and saying, I didn't, I wasn't even there or anything like that, which you and I have friends who, you know, went lots of, I have friends, women that have experienced that have, have lost their husbands and said, wasn't even worth it. Like not the war. That's not what I mean. It wasn't worth the separation. Like I should have, you know, made it work where we could have been together a little bit more often. So, well, again, life being shoved directly in front of your face so you can look at it and realize all the things that you think are necessary to do at the time to provide or to support or anything else. At the end of the day, it's really about the relationships that you have and, and the family that you're. Right. You still have to have worth for yourself. Like I have something that I'm passionate about, but it does put in perspective like, no. So when that happened, I reached out to my employer and said, you got to have something in the States because otherwise I want to come home. Like I don't want to do, you were, you know, thank God you were fine. You continued on with your deployment. You did not come home early. Um, but I knew let's start prepping for me to come home company. Like I'm not going to do this. And I was very fortunate. The company said, we happen to have a couple openings in Georgia. This is perfect for you. And I applied and I got it. You know, like it was just like a quick transfer kind of thing that were really open to me coming home. I it was also very blessed that at the same time that was a contract position. So um, still just as much sacrifice, but of a contract level, whereas I had um, also applied for a government position, which the difference is that you're, you know, you have rank, you have a career almost. You it can is. think about it that way, it's but it's federal service. It's you federal service. Oath, right. Same thing. same thing. So it's a little different in that you have an oath and you're held to different you know, UCMJ standards, but, you know, more career to it. I was going to be able right. to take advantage of my military time and tie it in together, you know, join the two for a retirement check someday. So I applied for a job also in Georgia, same unit you were in, and I got it. It's just that being coming into the federal service takes months um, versus contract you could do instantly. So I came back and was a contractor for a couple months and then transitioned into my federal service position down the street. So... Yeah, it was great. I think we continue to deploy and do, you know, deployments. We're very lucky while we were in Georgia. We deployed together, um, not the same location, but at the same time, which helped. So there wasn't like you leave right. and I leave. The separation, the time apart definitely helped. Yeah. I don't know if you look at it, the, the watching, watching me on ISR would have helped that much. But time apart and, and having the opportunities to maximize you know, time in the States to go on vacations, to actually live life, to, to grow our relationship and try to figure out. No, I think it's, it was very important to be a part because we were able, especially in those formative, later formative years, but important as far as formative years for our careers and our individuality that we had, like we were together as in we're making this journey together across the world, but you go that way, I'm going this way. Um, helped us become the individuals that we needed to be in order to be stronger in our marriage. So after that, it was like a change in your career and you decided this isn't something that I want to continue to do. I like the job, but this unit is going a little different in the track that they have planned. And we moved to North Carolina because I had a better job opportunity in North Carolina, better career choices. So I made it to Bragg where I, funny enough, I was so excited to have be in civil service in Georgia, but I gave up that civil service to go work as a contractor at Fort Bragg. 
Um, it's kind of a rite of passage that you had to complete in order to become a civilian. So I did that. Um, later became a civilian again. But we, you know, I think it was a few, two years that I was working um, in the building. And then you came in shortly after that. Um, and then we we're both to deploying again. I think that I'll never say that my time in the government or in the military were not worth it. I think they've definitely molded who I am today. And what I, why I say that is because not only do I have an immense love for my country and I'm proud of the sacrifices that I've made. Um, but you know, I think I've served well, but like I said in the beginning, it definitely molded who, or maybe put a, a mirror to my face and said, this is who you can be. And this is being something being hard. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep doing it. Um, especially if you have a passion for it. So I think, you know, later on in life, which you kind of talked about in your podcast about yourself, you know, after you and I had, um, our issues in our marriage and we were able to get back on track in a place where we could feel that we were both valued and, you know, equal partners in our marriage. Um, we were able to say, okay, let's, let's try to have kids. And obviously that didn't come at as easy as we thought it was going to be. Um, I will say that, you know, I've always said that being a spouse is the hardest job you'll ever have. And I say that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, being a parent is the hardest thing you'll ever do. I say, I view it differently because being a spouse is something that takes work. What I mean by that is that being a parent, you have this innate and organic love for your children. It's like something that as you're, as a parent, you know what it is. You, we all know what it is as parents that you would do anything for your children, physical, financially, anything. You would do anything for your children. Um, and that's just the way we're built. Good parents, at least. But as a spouse, you wouldn't do everything for your spouse every day. What other relationship in your life do you have that you're with that person all day, every day? You talk to them every day. You sleep next to them every day. And you still get along every day. I mean, there's no, I mean, even your best friend, you're like, okay, let's take a break. You know, I'm going to, I'll call you in a couple of days or whatever. You don't talk to them every day, all day. So it's a relationship with somebody else that you have to work at. And you have to make a conscious decision to be like, there are times that you're going to be like, this is not worth it. <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> Loves. I still love you. Um, but you have to continue to work at it. And even when it feels like, man, this, this guy or this girl's great. This isn't fucking working. You know, I'm tired. You have to then say, yeah, this isn't working. I'm tired and be like, so what therapy are we going to do now? You know, right. like you have to do that. Whereas with your children, you're like, I'll do anything for you. That's just innate, you know? So I think my military time, although, you know, you could say, oh, I served my country and, you know, I did all these things and I went overseas and everything. But those experiences and how difficult it was has definitely molded me into the wife that I am, but also the mother that I am because, you know, us having our children wasn't easy. And I can say that IVF is the hardest thing I've ever done um, for multiple reasons. Physically, um, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an emotional person. I try not to be. Um, 
emotions make me uncomfortable you know so ivf you're on so many hormones and you were deployed for a lot of ivf you know you were there for um us to do the retrieval but you were gone for every transfer you were gone for every butt shot you know you were gone for all those so you know as a woman you're thinking well my body is supposed to do this why isn't it and now i'm taking all these shots that are costing me a fortune by myself i mean i even debated hiring a nurse to like give me my butt shots and eventually i got over it and was like i got a rhythm but being someone who's unemotional and the military and our command you know where the background we come from taught me to be resilient and taught me to be you know fight through it you know like i talk about you know on september 11th that haze you know seeing through the straw if you've ever had like been drugged for like a surgery or something like that and you wake up and you're like out of it and you know that action you do with your eyes where you open your eyes wider like um, you're trying to soak in light or like focus that is what the military taught me and if you can transfer that over to life is that in the haze of ivf of my body is failing me and i am physically hurting my i can't sit my butt hurts so bad my stomach is swollen from all the hormones and it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing that focus of opening your eyes wider and ingesting sight and i and light to be to be able to say it sucks and I'm going to go through it. I remember distinctly um, post-transfer, they had transferred the first embryo in. And I remember jogging, running, because, you know, it was like, oh, it's important to stay active, you know, for blood flow. And, you know, you read everything. And I remember just crying, like, this isn't working. Like, it's not like, what else do I do now? And you and I had these conversations where I was like, my body's failing me. They say these embryos are perfect condition like you couldn't get a better embryo people wish to get one of the five that we got and it's not working like as a as a woman even prior to being a mom i remember saying if this one doesn't work we're donating it because i can't continue to kill these embryos it just was so hard to dig through it but i think that the military and the challenges that i faced in it and maybe even some growing up pushed me to say, you know, in those early morning hours and late at night when I'm giving myself the peanut butter shots, then I'm like, keep going, keep going. You can do this. You can do this. And I still remember it was one day leaving IVF clinic and I had had one of the million blood tests, my arms. I remember how black and blue my veins were. Um, leaving the clinic after them measuring my hormones and standing at the elevator waiting for it to come up. And there was this little meme, not even a meme because it wasn't a joke, but it was a meme and it had Jimmy Fallon on it. And it had like a picture of him and his family. And the quote was, right when you think of giving up, it'll happen. And that's what got me through it. And I think that through work, when I mentioned like, way in the beginning that I used to cry myself to sleep every day after work. I was like, I can't do this. And it happened. Like I just clicked and I figured out how to do my job. And with the girls, you just clicked one day. Like it just worked. 
And I think pushing through it is what the military taught me that it might suck in a physical way, emotional way, or even in a mental way, you know, just the way that it weighs on you, but you can get through it. That's it. That's what I learned. Now we got three amazing girls. Yes. Yes, we do. One of them was a surprise at the end. So all the hard work and look at her. She just came out of nowhere. So, yeah, I think in the end you get to where you're supposed to be. I thank you. I love you. It's very hard, and I know this was a, a hard ask for me, but I can only imagine how it felt for you coming and talking about it and, and putting it all out there. But ultimately, there's no other veteran that I wanted to talk to on Veterans Day uh, besides you. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, as they say, thank you for your service. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>